This is Tamara Labicki, and welcome to the Regenerative Goods Podcast. On today's episode, I interview Ilona Trogub about her microgreens company, Gorge Greens, and the Wind River Project, which sells biochar. Ilona fell in love with food and farming at a young age and pursued this passion through world travel, cooking, herbalism, and today growing microgreens in a greenhouse in southern Washington with Gorge Greens. In deeply forested Skamania County, she is planning a greenhouse complex that will use waste wood from surrounding woodland to create biochar while using the heat from the burn to heat and electrify the greenhouses. She envisions providing year-round local produce to her community while also helping other farms and gardens adapt to changing weather patterns with biochar amendments that can improve soil. It's really the bones of soil. It's putting the bones of soil back in so that the soil web has something to latch onto and to grow with. Biochar has a massive surface area and it has an electrical charge, like positive, like cation charge. And so it like holds on to lots of really awesome nutrients that you put in the soil alongside it. And then it slowly releases it for plants. Thank you so much for coming on. I just wanted to jump in. You know, you've been working in food for a very long time. You've been a chef, an herbalist, and a farmer. And I just wanted to ask, where did this passion come from? And what route have you taken in your career? And maybe just some insights that you've gained working in so many different roles. Yeah, absolutely. I think herbalism is an inherent part of the culture that I grew up in and the Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish culture. And it's kind of woven into food in such a way that it's seamless almost. And so unless you're like consciously acknowledging it as medicine, you might even oversee the way that it works. So the connection to like food and medicine for me has just always been there. And then, you know, growing up foraging and being a part of the landscape rather than just a voyeur in the landscape (laughs) has been something that I have felt aligned with my entire life and found it really interesting coming to the United States as a kid and witnessing how in America, a lot of cultural habits are just lacking participation in the landscape. It's kind of just like using it. I think those themes were pretty strong for me as a kid. And then as I grew up, I went to a friend's farm and was so enthralled by this idea of like, oh, you can just tend a piece of land and that's what you do for a living. I got so excited. I came home. My parents were like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm like, I want to be a farmer. And then they told me that's not a real job and I need to really reconsider. I just felt such an intense connection to the tangible world and watched as my parents, you know, moved from the Soviet Union to the States and acknowledged that like the food in the grocery stores just tastes weird and different and like doesn't taste right. And I had this deep question of what is right? Like, what is it supposed to taste like? Why is our food not good enough in grocery stores? And that led me 
down a path of really getting into more cooking and looking at ingredients as, you know, there's got to be more authentic versions of these foods somewhere. And cooking was always a really strong connection for me and my grandma. I was raised by my grandparents for the most part while my parents were working all the time as like new immigrants into the States. And for me, it was this constant exploration of the world through food and what it means for cultures to have these food traditions that I can participate in as somebody who prepares that food. And so I sort of wandered down that path and ended up going to culinary school because of it and thought I was going to be this famous chef. This was like before the whole chef craze. I was so excited to like travel the world and learn about all these recipes and share them with people. But then in my 20s, I had the, I had the opportunity to travel. I traveled for like eight months through Latin America. And the entire time I got to meet people and participate in making their family recipes. And, you know, I thought like, oh, great, you know, I'm going to have so many experiences and ingredients that I know how to use now. And in the travels, I also witnessed the kind of industrial agriculture that is wiping out cultures of place around the world and the banana plantations and the horror stories I heard about bananas and the horror stories I heard about fishing and just land access. And it really made me do a 180 and say, like, I'm not going to show up in Chicago and open a restaurant and expect these ingredients to be imported to me from these places. I need to really understand, like, how to participate in food ways that are minimally or, like, not abusive, ideally, (laughs) on the landscape, to the landscape for the people who are, you know, growing these foods. And so when I got back from traveling, I, I went and started working at this commune organic farm situation up in British Columbia and got really involved in like food systems organizing and what it means to really be place-based and have a diet that's place-based and what it means to live within reason, within a bioregion. You know, how do you identify the boundaries of your life place and like how far you should expect to get your majority of your nourishment and the majority of your fiber for your food and the majority of your energy and, and all of these things. So that's how my journey kind of brought me to this project because it's really difficult to scale up those idealistic tendencies to a model that actually employs people year round and provides a reasonable living wage. So that's like the big question I've been struggling with is like, how do you take these ideas that are the right thing to do or the important thing to do and scale them to a point where they actually provide a living wage for people? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, want to get to your what you're doing right now next but before we do I was wondering you know it seems like your story is kind of a circle where you started as a child you ended up as an adult that you were foraging and really intimately interacting with your natural environment as a child and then you found out that that was kind of the right way to do things all along after you explored all the other ways of interacting with food. So I was just wondering, do you have any specific memories of the type of foraging or how you would incorporate local foods or foraged foods into your diet when you were a child? Yeah, I mean, I feel like as often as we could, we'd go out into the forests of Ukraine. And depending on if it was summer or fall, we'd be going for berries or we'd be going for mushrooms and fish, the smell of 
uha cooking over the camp stove. It's like a fish stew made with pike and the smell of the fire and the fish stew and the potatoes charring in the fire holds such deep talons in my spirit. <laughs> like what it means to be with family in a land that you are knowing intimately. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So now to a much different food. What are you up to these days? <laughs> you know, in the, today is the second day of spring, third day of spring. Around the world in more temperate climates, there's this idea of spring greens. In Japan, they have like seven herbs of spring that you are meant to consume. And these are herbs that are just very tender. They're just poking out. They have a lot of really amazing cleansing power to them that involve more of a bitter, stimulating flavor or like a little spicy cleansing flavor, fiber, lots of fiber to like push out all the duck stuff of winter. And this is a tradition that's existed for, you know, eons and eons for human beings as the snow clears and these plants show up. And... In the modern diet, you know, we're eating year-round, very similar foods. And one of the things that lacks the most is these, like, bitter cleansing plants that we have put to the wayside in exchange for things that we perceive as tasting good or mild or neutral. And we can just cover it in, like, fatty, salty, sweet dressings and consume, like, iceberg lettuce, for example. So... Uh, microgreens, in my opinion, and that's what we grow now, microgreens are those plants that we would otherwise only get for this very short period of time in the spring. So we grow pea shoots, radishes, broccoli, grow in particular a variety of broccoli that was developed by the Johns Hopkins Institute with a seed grower for sort of maximum sulforaphane development in the body. And that's the kind of stuff that like really helps your cells get rid of toxic uh, substances. And there's some fantastic studies out of China looking at, you know, how sulforaphane is used by ourselves to purge toxins, especially in like really air polluted areas. So that's sort of what I focus on now is just like, I think there's a way to do greenhouse development. And we started with microgreens and other people start with different plants, but there's a way to do this greenhouse development in a way that is scaling up the idea of permaculture and scaling up the idea of white livelihood for people who are taking care of the earth rather than taking advantage of it. Right. And you're bringing spring to the people. Yeah, you're round. Yeah. Weird as that sounds. Otherwise, <laughs> they don't have it. That's very cool. You are putting out your microgreens called Gorge Greens. And I saw part of your website, you have suggestions for how to eat them. So what do you think the easiest or best way to incorporate these into your diet would be? I think it depends if you're like a snacker or not a snacker. Because like if you're a snacker, the easiest way to incorporate them is if you're doing like cheese and crackers or a little like whatever munching on things. You just like munch the microgreens right alongside those other things and if you're like not a snacker or you're looking to add them to meals um, you can either substitute the salad with just microgreens 
You can incorporate the microgreens into a salad, or you can use them as a garnish. Maybe not like in the vegetable confetti sense of like three little microgreens like fancy restaurants do, but in the like a handful, (laughs) like plop a handful in whatever you're eating. Or consider them the base layer of something more saucy. I love having beans on top of the microgreens, kind of like a beans and greens situation, and then like a fried egg on top of that for breakfast, or just a fried egg on microgreens, from like Parmesan, olive oil, and balsamic. For me, it's like the best time to eat microgreens is breakfast, because that's when your digestive system's like getting going and getting ready for the day, and you're going to be like putting all kinds of interesting things in there. So as a way of like priming your digestive organs, your liver, your gallbladder, pancreas, intestines, all that good stuff, stomach, esophagus, get some good fiber going, get some rich stimulating flavors going, and then it kind of like sets you up for the day, in my opinion. And it also is like amazing for regularity. Right. And I can go more into that, but I, I don't have to. <laughs> so I was wondering if we could switch a little bit because Gorge Greens is part of a bigger project called the Wind River Project. And right now it's kind of in its infancy, but I was wondering if you could tell me what the bigger plan for Gorge Greens and the Wind River Project is. Yeah, absolutely. So the project recently secured 25 acres of land to develop what we are calling a circular economy business park. And it sort of surrounds this uh, heat and power system called a CHP. The one we have in particular is a chip tech 20 and it is designed to handle about 16,000 tons of waste wood a year. This is wood that would otherwise just get piled and burned. Uh, today, my valley is very smoky. It's been smoky for the past two weeks because neighbors are burning their slash piles from land that they've cleared. I live in Skamania County. It's, it's very much forest-based, and timber industry has been very strong here for a long time. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. So the question is, what's the best use of waste wood? And some people would think, oh, you know, I chop it up and put it back in the ground. But it turns out that when you allow wood to break down naturally, all the carbon that's in there pretty much gets turned into CO2 eventually by the natural breakdown process. And it's like absolutely part of a functional carbon cycle. But we're dealing with a very broken carbon cycle at this point. So the kind of energy that we're having to make in order to have a society that functions the way ours does relies on a lot of energy production from sources that create additional CO2 in the environment or worse, methane and all that good stuff. At this point, it's a question of like, how do we develop food production systems? And and in places like where we are in the North, year-round food production systems that don't rely on food being trucked in from far away. How do we produce food year-round using something that would otherwise be waste? So this circular economy business park will be bringing in waste wood, running it through the gas fire system. Uh, The gas fire system we have can actually produce biochar. So the carbon, like in a best-case scenario, would be thinking about 60% of the carbon in the form of this soil building material called biochar. It's kind of like charcoal, but it's denser. It has a couple of other properties I can get into. 
And then the heat and power would actually be used by the greenhouses to produce things like more microgreens or leafy greens or tomatoes, or peppers, or cucumbers, or strawberries, things that otherwise are coming from somewhere far away 99.9% of the time, especially with grocery stores and the way that like cold chains function and produce chains function. They want simplicity in their ordering, and so they'll get it from somewhere far away year-round, even though the farmer down the road has enough tomatoes for them for maybe a month of tomatoes. That's like one of the really funky things about our food system where local becomes inaccessible because it's inconvenient to the business. Right. But by producing it in a greenhouse system year-round, you then fit the needs of the business while also keeping things local. That's very cool. Did you say 60% of the carbon stays in the biochar? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on what studies you look at, but there's definitely some studies that say like up to 60% of the carbon can get captured in the form of biochar. It's like running really inefficiently. If you think about like putting wood in a wood stove, you can fill a wood stove up and it'll be real hot. And at the end of the night or in the morning, you go over to the wood stove and it's nothing but ash. Like that's a really efficient burn, but all the carbon has basically linked up with oxygen and went up into the atmosphere through your chimney. In our system, the wood goes through slow enough and it's like an oxygen-free environment enough. (laughs) It's not like 100% oxygen-free, but there's very little oxygen in it. And so the carbon pyrolyzes, meaning the wood gases are burned off or volatilized. And then what you're left with is the carbon in this matrix in the form of biochar. Right. So just to go back for one detail, what is waste wood? Like, why is there so much waste wood around where you live? So Smania County is something like 78% national forest. And a national forest is not a national park. You know, like, it's a really important distinction. National parks are meant for that kind of, <laughs> uh, as I originally was was describing, this idea of, like, interacting with the landscape as a kind of voyeur somebody who's like a tourist on the landscape. That's sort of the idea of national parks, in my opinion, are. And national forests are meant for people to really be more of a part of the forest and do this resource dance with the forest. And I'm speaking like in the eyes of the government, this is how the national forest is viewed. And where I live, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, Gifford Pinchot developed the Forest Service. He came up with this idea of like multiple use public lands. So there's hunting, there's fishing, and there's logging. And the government regularly sells blocks of forest to logging outfits, timber industries, and they come in and they cut it down. And then they have these burn piles, big flash piles of all the flash that's left over from logging. And so they either burn it or they don't burn it. And it just breaks down over time. The area gets replanted right. with new trees. So it's kind of like the uh, the wood that wasn't usable as the logs that they ship out of the forest. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. Um, and then there's a lot of people around here who have their own land that they are managing small timber lots with. At this moment, you know, I'm smelling smoke in the air from that. Just a neighbor with... 10 acres or 20 acres they cleared and had 
brush piles for the past 10 years and decided to burn them this year. Oh, fun. Yeah. So once you get this waste wood and burn it for the biochar in this inefficient Mm -hmm. manner, inefficient sounds bad, but this is actually a good inefficient, 70% stays in the biochar. And then the vision is that eventually you'll pipe some of the remaining carbon in the form of carbon dioxide into the greenhouses to stimulate the plant growth as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when when we were researching greenhouse technology in the Netherlands and Belgium back in spring of 2019, that was one of the big questions we had is like, oh, you know, who is producing their own energy and, and what are they doing with the CO2 that's coming out of the system? And we did come across this operation called TomWatt in Belgium. They were doing natural gas, c- combined heat and power, hmm. and they had a 40-acre tomato operation and so they would burn the natural gas and then use a precipitant to clean all the fumes that are coming off of the burn and that precipitant would like knock out all the toxins and then that co2 would then be pumped straight into the greenhouses to stimulate the tomato growth Um, and then the heat and power also gets used by the greenhouse to keep it warm enough to have these plants grow (laughs) and then have the electric lights simulating sunshine when it's not actually that sunny in the Pacific Northwest, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We right now in our greenhouse, we're just using propane for the winter time, and we see like quite a high bill related to that process. It's just I could not imagine it being sustainable for a lot of other crops besides like microgreens and cannabis, honestly. Right. And that's like why we don't have a greenhouse industry out here. Right. No, we have some of the cheapest power in the United States, actually. Right. But for heat, it's it's harder to get that through just electricity alone. Very expensive, yeah. <laughs> right. And if the power goes out, then you're screwed. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so this sounds like a really exciting project, and I'm expectantly awaiting to hear news of once you get it up and running. Yeah, I think every day we're getting a little closer and I'm hoping, you know, at some point we'll just pull the trigger and start constructing the next phase. The market's really going to decide like what our next greenhouse is going to be growing. But I think we're starting to kind of saturate with microgreens. (laughs) And, you know, we're looking at potentially leafy greens or strawberries. You know, what's, what's next on the horizon? So let's talk about biochar for a little bit. So my understanding is that the Wind River Project is already selling some biochar that they're getting from a little more north in Washington state. Yeah. You know, our equipment is not running, so we're not able to produce our own biochar. And this is like a funny situation that the the scale of it was really revealed to me at this three-day business of biochar conference where biochar use is not that common because it's expensive to use biochar in, for example, agriculture. And there's not more producers making biochar to bring down the cost of it because there's not enough demand from farmers who don't want to use it because it's too expensive. And it's this catch-22 stalemate at this point. And what's really exciting is like Washington State just passed legislation saying that if a project can use biochar, it, will, it should use biochar and that state funds are approved for the use of biochar for like remediation of soil and water and things like that. 
speeding up composting processes. Like, there's lots of really awesome use of biochar. And in the meantime, like, a lot of folks just don't even know what it is. They don't know how to use it. So we developed a partnership with a farm up north where we're bringing it down and distributing it and educating folks about how to use biochar in hopes that there's enough of a growing demand that can then justify us getting our system online and starting to produce a lot of biochar. Cool. And then having a market for it. Okay, so maybe you could give me the spiel that you guys have uh, come up with to get people excited (laughs) about biochar. Yeah, absolutely. As somebody who is from, you know, what is now Ukraine, uh, if you think about the rich black soils of Ukraine, if you think about the rich black soils of the Midwest, of Iowa in particular, if you think about the really dense populations of people living along the Amazon for a really long time, and this uh, discovery called Terra Preta down there, where they were like, oh, the reason why their agriculture was so like bountiful is because they had this really rich black soil from this practice of adding char into the soil consistently, burning fields at this low, cool burn of a field produces char. And agriculturalists around the world have known these methods and have used these methods and built up incredible soils. So, so how do we put char back into soil as a constant practice? For us, it looks like taking waste wood and turning it into biochar in this heat and power system, using the excess heat and power created to grow food, but also then having this biochar available for farmers to put back into their soils really easily. It's not like compost. It's not, it's not charged with a bunch of you know, nutrients that plants need. It's really the bones of soil. It's putting the bones of soil back in so that the soil web has something to latch onto and to grow with. Biochar has a massive surface area and it has an electrical charge, like positive, like cation charge. And so it like holds on to lots of really awesome nutrients that you put in the soil alongside it. And then it slowly releases it for plants. So that's what we're advocating for is like, how do we bring structure back to our soils? How do we create really healthy soils so that we have to use minimal fertilizers, minimal nutrients, minimal amendments, and the plants are getting what they need? Yeah, that sounds really awesome. Um, Could you go into a little more what the soil web that would kind of use this structure to build onto? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about like what just recently disturbed soil is, it's soil that's got a lot of air access, aerobic environment in the soil. It, it, I'm like looking at a molehill right now or like a gopher hill. It's close to sunlight. It's not something where there's a dense community of fungi and bacteria and like protozoa and amoebas and nematodes all interacting. It is basically at this point pretty light on the diversity and density of all these little microscopic creatures. But as soil gets buried and starts interacting with lots of roots and starts interacting with the fungi from nearby areas, from undisturbed soils, they start creating this really amazing community. And it has like a lot of nutrient shuffling happening and it has moisture control and it has all these features that plants really depend on. So when we're talking about agriculture, we have to think about how to create soil that like plants are used to rather than this 
inert material that we shove with a bunch of chemicals we think the plant wants. So in terms of the water management aspect of it, to me, that is very interesting, you know, because part of why I got drawn into thinking about agriculture and specifically regenerative agriculture was climate change, to be frank, and Mm -hmm. the acknowledgement that climate change is just bringing these much longer periods of drought or much, much heavier flooding. And that kind of breaks down to water, right? Water (laughs) being a lot different from how it's been in the past and that directly affecting our ability to grow food. So could you talk a little bit about how biochar provides a little resiliency in that area? Yeah, absolutely. I sold a, I think at this point I sold them like two yards of biochar, but a farm out near Portland. And she reached out to me saying like, oh, like I can't believe how much of a drastic difference I've seen in applying biochar to the garden. She thought for sure during that like really crazy hot spell in uh, April last year that she would have lost her whole garden that she had just planted with salad greens. Yeah. And she was like blown away. She had gone out of town for a week. She was blown away that everything was like looking great when she got back. And that's because like the biochar was able to hold on to so much moisture and have that consistent moisture environment for the plants. It also speeds up the growth of plants when you have consistent moisture. And that's like principles of like hydroponics, why a hydroponic farm can produce a head of leafy, you know, romaine in like five weeks is because it's just consistent and you're not causing the plant to stress and focus its energy in other areas. All it's doing is focusing on growing. Yeah, that's really cool. I love to hear the real world example of these things working. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I wonder if we could maybe just end by, um, you could tell me where people could get the Gorge Greens, and even if there's any biochar available, where they might be able to get that. I know I'm not in your area, but in case anyone's listening that's in the area, I think that would be useful information. Yeah, absolutely. We actually have a new distributor. Uh, We're working with organically grown company, OGC, and they've been distributing our microgreens to like some PCC markets up in Seattle. Cool. And I'm not totally sure where, (laughs) but I think we're definitely in Seattle through them. And then in Portland area, we're in most new seasons. We're in the co-ops, except for Alberta co-ops, the People's Co-op, Food Front, we're there. We deliver to restaurants, and we have like really awesome bulk rates for restaurants because we think that's one of the best ways that people can eat our microgreens. And we do a porch drop system so people can subscribe and get those awesome restaurant rates for bulk microgreens. And they just get dropped at a neighborhood porch cooler, and then we text you right when they arrive. And it's just an automatic subscription system. We try to keep it real simple. We're all over the gorge in restaurants and grocery stores. I would say all you have to do is, you know, add a handful to whatever you're eating to make it real easy to get that awesome plant energy that we so often neglect. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward maybe in a few years to talking to you again once you get um, a few more greenhouses up and start the biochar production on site. 
That's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of those things that the world needs. And the question is, is the world willing to pay for it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think we need to. So I'm optimistic. Oh, good. The Regenerative Goods Podcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Ilona Trogub. We spoke by telephone on March 22, 2022. Check out the website for Gorge Greens at gorgegreens.com. G-O-R-G-E greens.com and the Wind River Project at windriverproject.com. Thanks again for listening and make sure to charge your biochar.